Well, it's a great joy to be together this morning. Let me invite us to turn now to our Bibles as we continue worshiping Christ together at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow. We're coming now to Jesus' word. So let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Uh, you'll find it in your Bibles. Romans chapter 4. As we come now to God's word, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you that uh, you are Lord, and we believe that uh, you rule by the word of your power, you rule um, all of reality, the whole universe, you rule uh, the church through your word. You are Lord, and we wish to hear from you, our loving, compassionate servant Lord. And so we come now to your word to do that. Would you speak through your spirit, would you soften our hearts? to receive what it is that you have to say to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So friends, we've got to Romans chapter 4. We're looking this morning from verse 13 through to verse 15. We're picking up uh, Paul's argument about what it means to live by faith, and uh, he is using Abraham as an ongoing illustration, really, of what it means to live by faith. Very relevant for us in our world today. Abraham, of course, a nomad, a wanderer, who was looking forward to a promise about which we are now going to hear. Beginning at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, what does it mean, then, to inherit the world? Our passage this morning has three answers to that question, two wrong and one right. There is the Roman, the religious and the righteous. The Roman view actually undergirds much of the background rhetoric of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans was written to, well, Rome. And Rome, of course, was the center of the empire, the center of the world. Rome was New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, all rolled into one. Rome was the financial center of the globe. Enormous and complicated trade spun out from Rome, to which all roads led. It was the political and military center as well. The Roman legions had conquered the world so that for all intents and purposes, anything outside of the Roman Empire was not part of the world to your average Roman. It was also the center for popular entertainment. While, of course, Athens in Greece was the center of intellect in days gone by with the famous trio of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, and uh, of sophisticated drama with uh, the equally famous trio in those days of Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. While that was the case, the circus, of course, Well, that found its center in Rome, 
Here was the center of massive, bloody, fantastical, popular entertainment. And so Paul wrote to people who inevitably and inescapably and incontrovertibly thought of themselves as inheritors of the world. They were in Rome. I remember one man I knew who lived in Manhattan and was at the center of some vast global financial empire. I discovered he had never left Manhattan. Why would he? He didn't own a car. What did he need with one? He was at the center of the world. Well, this, New York plus Washington, D.C. plus L.A., surely influenced the minds set of these Romans to whom uh, Paul wrote. They were in Rome, the center of the world. And this was not mere hubris, arrogance, or misplaced confidence. The Romans had conquered the world. Uh, Roman law still forms the basis of much of contemporary Western law. The codex, the book in its present form, was invented by the Romans and spread by the Roman Christians through their use of the Bible. They were in the center of the world. To be an inheritor of the world, therefore, meant to be a Roman, and a Roman par excellence, a Roman and to excel as a Roman. Or did it? Paul wants to present to them a different view of what it is truly to be an inheritor of the world. The inheritors of the world are not those whose names appear regularly on the Forbes 500 richest men in the world. The inheritors of the world are not the children of the 80 richest billionaires in the world. The inheritors of the world are not the political ruling class, the Hollywood celebrity. Rome has its place. Uh, Paul loves them. He writes to them. He wants them to maximize their influence for Christ. But first... And they need to understand what it truly means to be an inheritor of the world. So easy to miss this point, I think. I knew a man once who was organizing a private university in a city that was very much removed from what I would consider anywhere even close to the center of the world. A long way from Chicago, New York, L.A., D.C., or anywhere else that seemed to me to be of significance. Well, he introduced us to his empire. We had toured this run-down, dilapidated university that it was his responsibility to organize. We listened to his view of his own life as of preeminent importance and indescribable precedence. And then he took us to his house to view his latest creation. Now, he was building it from scratch. He, He told us of how he was constructing this his Latest barn, after his old barns had fallen into disrepair. All in this to us, dust heap of a place. And as he talked and talked, he temporarily pauses for air. And someone in the back of the car leant across to him and said, After you've done all that, what then will you do? Well, he has some answer. And then what? And then what? 
Bahn auf der Bahn auf der Bahn. And then what? The Roman answer to what it is to inherit the world can affect anyone. Even the Roman Empire, for all its brilliance, was a temporary creation under the sovereign authority of the living God for the purpose of his kingdom. Caesar after Caesar little knew that their preeminence would be passed by a carpenter. Little did the creator of the Codex know that his book in its modern form would be most famous for the manuscripts of the book, the Bible. The catacombs where the impoverished and persecuted Christians hid from the powers that be. Little did those powers know that when their graves had been built over and their bones turned to dust, those catacombs would attract tourist after tourist. While experts still pore over the meaning of Plato and Aristotle and the students of the greats enjoy the brilliance of Sophocles' drama, each Sunday, children to adults all learn the name and meaning of Moses and David and Abraham and one Jesus called Christ. Roman. Religious. Well, if not the Roman for all its imperial brilliance and pervasive power, then surely the only alternative is that it is the religious who will inherit the world. Right? What else could there be? But Paul says it is not by the law. Now, the Bible does not use the word law in the same way in every place. And so we need to look at the context to understand how it is being used in, in this particular place. Sometimes uh, the Bible means um, the ceremonial law, all the different rituals and that in the Old Testament. Sometimes it means the sacrificial law, the lambs and goats and all that sort of thing in the Old Testament. Sometimes the law means the Word of God. As it does in Psalm 119, thy word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. Sometimes the law is used as a principle. Uh, Paul talks of the law of the Spirit. That is the principle of how the Spirit works. Sometimes law means conscience. Uh, Paul has talked already in his letter of the law written on our hearts. That is conscience. So these different usages, they're usually said to be three purposes given to the law when used as a moral code. First, it is a mirror to our own lives, a diagnosis to convict us of our need of a Savior, shows us where we failed so that we can understand who we need, Jesus. It's a mirror. Second, the law is also used to restrain evil in society, to minimize crime and chaos. We have laws in our country that protect us, by and large. Third, it is a, a guide into what it is that God wants us to be and to do. As Jesus himself said, he who loves me will obey my commandments. And the law shows us what those commandments are that if we love Jesus, we will obey. 
Now, when Paul says here, the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression, what is he talking about? Well, he is referring to the first purpose of the law, whether external, written, or internal on our hearts, that purpose for the law to be a mirror, a diagnosis, to show us where we have broken God's intention for our lives. So there is a right use of the law to lead us to Christ and show us how to please Christ, the schoolmaster, as Paul talks about in Galatians, to point us to Jesus. There is a right use of the law, but there's also a wrong use, not a purpose, but a perversion. And that, you see, is why Paul also says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law. Paul is referring back to his argument previously that because the promise came to Abraham before he was circumcised, that promise was based on faith, not on the law. Well, this perversion of the law is actually then, Paul says, antithetical, antipathetic, antagonistic, anti-faith. For, Paul says, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So Paul is not saying morality is removed. He is saying that if we think that we become inheritors of the world through the law, then faith is fiction and the promise is pointless. You see, this perverse use of the law has always been with us and is present in every creed and culture and spiritual system. It is often referred to as works righteousness. It is the idea that what I do in my own power and by my own effort, albeit doing things that I find that God tells me to do in a holy book, will, I think, by my own merits and in my own strength, mean I am the inheritor of the world. And for shorthand this morning, I just call it religion. It is what causes religious wars. It is the religion behind ideological systems that repress other people. It is the religion behind the religion of tolerance that is intolerant to everyone but itself. It is the religion that creates caste systems that repress and dominate others. It is the religion behind the racial discrimination threatening the Roman church, which had in its midst both Jew and Gentile. It is the religion behind the extremists who bomb and burn to gain their works righteousness. It is the religion behind the LBGT movement that in seeking freedom for its own adherence to its own temples excommunicates anyone who disagrees. It is the antipathy to freedom and the antidote to grace and the toxic wasteland of a fading faith. It is how evangelicals become liberals, and how liberals become universalists, and how universalists become atheists, and how atheists become persecutors of the people of faith. First, you assume the gospel. Then, you lose the gospel. 
First, you take it for granted, and in its place, you construct ceremonies and rituals and endless vestments and sacramental systems. First, you undermine the authority of the faith in the Bible, and then you have to look for an alternative authority, well, in the church. First, you assume the gospel, then you lose the gospel. First, you assume the gospel, and you bring your family to church for the moral framework that it gives them for life. And then they lose the gospel because they have no reason why to bring their own children to church. It's how evangelicals become liberals, how liberals become universalists, how universalists become atheists, how atheists become persecutors of the people of faith. Religion, the adherence of the law, the law of ritual, works righteousness, whether about a god or about any other idolatrous, absolutist ideology will lead to exclusion of others and keep the Gentiles out or keep the Jewish out or keep the people of different color out or the people of different race out or the people of different culture out or the people who are not tolerant of everything so that there is an intolerance of tolerance that persecutes the people of faith. Religion, this religion is a festering wound covering up with a bandage and not healed. And so that wound continues to fester and grow and the promise is null and the faith is void. It is the religion of sex that says if we follow a certain ritual, we will be inheritors of the world. It is the religion of mammon that says, if we follow its rules, we will be inheritors of the world. It is the religion of religion that has its own rules, which many people think we in the church preach not at all. We do not preach religion. We preach Christ and him crucified, not Roman not religion, righteous. Paul says, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The righteous by faith are the inheritors of the world. This three ways, contentment, clarity, confidence. First, contentment as his offspring. Paul refers to the seed that is Christ and to all who are in Christ. So he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are of Christ. Christ is of God. And so we fix our minds on our inheritance in Christ as the focal point, as our focal point that releases us from regret. A judicious, careful accounting of all we have in Christ protects us from acceding to jealousy. What real inheritance can someone have that we do not have? What can someone gain that we do not have guaranteed already? 
Godliness with contentment is great gain, because to be content is rightly to judge the great gain. So let's total it up, draw up the accounts, fill in the spreadsheet. Who has more? Who has the sins forgiven? Whose guilt is removed? Who has victory over death and hell? Whose faith is followed across the globe and down through time? Who has a greater moral code than the Sermon on the Mount? Who has a more compassionate message than the cross? Who has a more victorious proclamation than the resurrection? Who has more empathy than found in the incarnation? More humility than in the crown of thorns? More culture than found in a Milton? More leadership than in a Wilberforce? More sacrifice than a Bonhoeffer? More world-changing impact than a Luther? And that is only a faint impression of the influences of Christ, the offspring in whom we have all things. Content? It's too small a word. The Christian woman scrubbing the floor. The Christian man changing a diaper. The Christian teenager praying before school are jewels in the crown of glory. You can keep your baubles of success and fame. We have Christ, a glory that does not fade like the summer flower. Second clarity. The promise to Abraham to be heir of the world means what precisely? Well, Paul was referring to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, which reads like this, I will make you a great nation, I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is a mission promise, a serving promise, a blessing promise. A promise that was given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, has come to Wheaton and is going to all the families of the earth. Christ has come, Christ is risen, Christ will return. And now the blessing of salvation is going around the globe and we are inheritors of that blessing. One day Christ will return and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, and that promise will be finally fulfilled. And so to be heir of the world means to be part of God's purpose to bless all nations forever. That means that if you are in Christ, your life has global significance. It means that if you are in Christ, your life has eternal significance. It means that the church, the true church to whom Paul writes in this letter, is at the center of God's plan to bless all nations forever. So this sanctuary is not an escape from the world. 
This is the hub of God's purpose to bless all nations. And as you sit in your seat, sing the songs, pray the prayers, talk to each other, encourage, disciple, listen to each other, we as the church are inheriting God's purpose to bless the world. See, church is not an institution to which you have allegiance. Church is not a meeting that you attend. Church is the people of God inheriting the blessing of God for the purpose of God's mission to bless all nations globally and eternally. Clarity. Contentment. Third, confidence as the promise did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. This ancient church, surrounded by imperial legions at the hub of world empire, a group of people insignificant in the world's eyes, watching as Emperor Nero's nefarious rule turned from mediocre to malicious to malevolent, spurned, worshipping a man depicted in one catacomb as a donkey on a cross laughed and ridiculed with power around them, intellectual sophistication around them. How did this church turn the world upside down? This church, surrounded by persecutors of the faith, fighting with the weapons of pen and punitive dictates, threatening to kill with legal maneuvers and having killed reformers beforehand in the person of one Jan Hus from Bohemia. How did this church turn the world upside down? We live, my dear soul, in an age of trial. What will be the consequence I know not. It's easy to feel that way today, isn't it? I'm told that relief organizations found in the early 20th century say they are facing more crises on more fronts than at any time in their whole history. We watch as precious liberties are overturned by putrid questions. We hear of wars and rumors of wars. We live in an age of trial. What will be the consequence? I know not. So said John Adams in 1774. Each generation has its own challenge. Each generation must find its own voice. Each generation is tempted to think that its moment is worse than ever before. When I look at the rising generation, I fear for the future of the world, so Aristotle is said to have remarked. What is the secret source of faithfulness, fruit, and persevering eternal victory in the cause of Christ? How do we fight valiantly under the banner of Christ, holding up the shield of faith? It is this. And this alone, you who trust Christ have his righteousness.
you can be confident. You can throw ink pots at the devil like Luther did. Spurn dictators like the Roman Christians did. And be confident that you will not be disappointed. Why? Those who are righteous by faith will inherit the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray as we come now to your table that the glory and wonder and truth of your death and resurrection, the power of the cross would renew us, refresh us, And yes, Lord, give us confidence. Show us this promised inheritance that we might live for you by the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.